Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly, and I am 100%. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And Jeff, I am the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, Nice. Jeff. Uh, part 16 of Twin Peaks, The Return, lived up to its name, Dale Cooper, original variety, except no substitutes, special agent Dale Cooper, loves his sandwiches, loves the people around him, loves honoring the people around him. Let's just talk about that for a second here. Shook Bushnell Mullins' hand, says the Mitchum brothers have hearts of gold, really appreciates the whole <laughs> Jones family. Jeff, this was an episode that had a couple of my favorite favorite moments in the series in it. We'll be getting into those later, but just uh, broad strokes, this episode saw the return of a character that you have said on, on multiple occasions might be your favorite TV character ever. Uh, how did you feel about part 16? Oh, I loved it. I mean, it, I'm almost struck speechless, which is a really bad thing for our podcast, I guess, uh, because we have nine hours to fill, I'm told. <laughs> uh, just kidding. <laughs> No, that that experience was last night was pretty amazing. I'm still kind of giddy from it this morning here at the crack of dawn as we record this podcast. The whole Agent Cooper aside of it, it just felt like one killer scene after another and off, you know, this just amazing juggle of different tones from Mr. C and Richard and that weirdness and that sinisterness spliced with the comedy of Jerry to what happened at the end of the show with Audrey and that dive down the nostalgia well and then, you know, through the mirror and back again into like, you know, crazy what's going on land. But The Cooper of it all, you know, just dominates everything for me. The the moment where he just springs back to life and he, like, you are awake, you know, says Mike and 100%. And the thing that just struck me in those moments in the hospital with Kyle McLaughlin giving us full Cooper again with the posture, with the demeanor, with the voice the way he talked. I think the part where I just kind of melted the most might have been when he asked for the sandwiches. Yes! <laughs> Bushnell, give me some of those sandwiches. I'm starving. <laughs> you know, um, just just to experience the Cooper personality again. And Kyle McLaughlin dialed totally into it. And you are feeling and you are hearing Agent Cooper, the way that you kind of remembered him from 20 some odd years ago, Kyle's aged. He looks like an uh, an older Agent Cooper, but the person that he was summoning was that person from, uh, you know, 25 years ago. And it was such a rush of nostalgia. It was almost like time travel. Like, oh, we are back at that moment of time watching this character again. But but we're not here. We're in the present and we're in this story. So, and I would just say, bottom line, that if you haven't been impressed by Kyle McLaughlin's performance this season, what he did with this episode and giving us Cooper that we remember, it almost like offered a baseline 
finally for everything that he's doing because we we got the Cooper that we remembered, we got the performance that we've wanted, and it was it was great. But in doing so, he actually made me appreciate what he's doing with Mr. C even more, and I've grown to really be impressed by that. And it immediately makes you miss, actually, but also be really even more impressed by what he did with Dougie. And I would just say in general, given that this was also a huge monumental Diane episode that was monumental for a lot of reasons, including the fact that Laura Dern was absolutely amazing in her scenes too. This was an episode that gave Twin Peaks fans a lot of what they wanted for 16 hours but on a David Lynch appreciation axis, it was also just this love letter to these two key collaborators in Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan and what they've meant to him, um, but, but just sort of letting them shine in a way that just, that for me signals just Lynch's like love for these two actors and what they've given him over the years. It makes me wonder if we'll never really see Kyle and Laura share a scene together, um, so we won't get like the Blue Velvet reunion. I loved it, Darren. I'm 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 now finding my words and blabbering on and on and on and not giving you a chance to talk, but. I'm guessing you loved it too. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I couldn't agree more. Just what you were saying at the end really resonated so much with me. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to interview Laura Dern earlier this year when she'd only starred in like four awesome things. I, I feel like this is very much her year of just sort of appearing constantly on all screens with the Star Wars movies still yet to come. Um, but I recall her kind of talking about being on the set of Blue Velvet. You know, she was a very young actress, comic. Glockin was a very young actor. David Lynch still, you know, very young and very much kind of in an, in an interesting, you know, radical shift space of his film career and her just talking about what it was like being on that set, really describing it as if it was like, you know, just us three crazy kids all together. And I think that just, that's the thing that almost at a deeper level kind of brought a tear to my eye in this episode was thinking about, I mean, you know, Dale Cooper has now officially returned to Earth, re- returned in quote marks, Earth in quote marks. Who knows what's really going on? Thanks for that, Audrey. But um, just, you know, <laughs> the sense of a return and of a character being revived, we see that so often these days, and it can sometimes kind of lose its its wonderfulness. We're so used to seeing these characters returned after decades away. But seeing, I think... As you said, Laura Dern giving a kind of performance that tied in really strongly with some of the, some of the performances she's given uh, with Lynch before. Seeing Comic Lachlan play that character, I don't know. That's the thing that really just sort of started to move me. I just I find it so wonderful to think of. Among the hundred things I love about Twin Peaks this season, one of them is definitely the the getting the band back together act three of the Muppets movie quality of it all. And I just think that that was really moving to me. <laughs> Jeff, let's dig in here, Jeff. We got a lot to get through. Part 16 was jam-packed, full of uh, surprising twists. Let's start off with our favorite supporting characters, the coordinates. Uh, yes, Jeff. <laughs> 
are they our favorites? We had theorized the, 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 the coordinates. I've decided the coordinates are just sort of, you know, they're very much the letters of transit MacGuffin of this season. And I almost kind of think <laughs> that Mr. C's obsession with the coordinates is some expression of like how kind of inhuman he is. You know, we've we've seen like, you know, Gordon Cole's thing this season is like, hey, like, yeah, we're on a case, but chill out and enjoy life and stay in a hotel for like for, for 10 weeks. And like, you know, clearly Cooper's journey has also been stop and smell the roses and learn to love your family. So I'm, I'm struck by the idea that Mr. C, his one sort of relationship this season is really with the coordinates. We saw him and Richard arrive. Jeff, we'd been theorizing what are those two people going to say to each other uh, now that they're finally together? Well, we may have to wonder that forever, <laughs> unfortunately, because we saw them at the end of their journey. Loved just the kind of scene setting here. This was another great sort of Lynchian single car spotlight kind of cutting through the darkness, lonely road. Uh, Mr. C gets out, tells Richard, you know, I've gotten three sets of coordinates this season. Two of them are the same. Which of those would you go to? Richard, already a good student in the very Voldemorty evil school that he's found himself in, says we should check out the one where the two coordinates agree. You had sort of looked into this, Jeff, because numbers make my head spin, but I believe he's received coordinates from Ray and from Diane and from the Philip Jeffries tea kettle, right? Those are the three. Yeah, well, he said, uh, you know, three people have given me coordinates, two of them match. And that immediately kind of like got me like scanning my Twin Peaks memory bank and realizing that that memory bank is just so crammed full now of scenes and incident and characters and mythology (laughs) that it's like I'm lost in it. And then my job is to recap it. But I recall that the tea kettle, the magnificent tea kettle, that is Agent Jeffries, like, you know, uh, puffed uh, a set of numbers to him. We know that uh, Ray gave him a, a, a piece of paper with numbers, but he warned him that h- how do you know these these numbers are actually legit, which now in retrospect was a bit of foreshadowing that that set up the moment that we got. We also know that the Buckhorn crew found a set of numbers on Ruth Davenport's arm when they finally found her body out there in the on the outskirts of town. And that that Diane committed them to memory or tried to. And in a follow-up moment at the bar, she inputted those numbers into her phone in an attempt to figure out where they uh, led. And we we were left with the impression in that moment that that she didn't recall the numbers correctly. Um, she couldn't get the last two digits of that long stretch of numbers. Now, it may not make a massive amount of difference in terms of just at least kind of like uh, pinpointing where, you know, generally and, you know, even actually kind of specifically what the coordinates are go to. But when she inputted the numbers, it revealed that the coordinates pertain to an area in or around Twin Peaks, which matches up with what Albert had told Cole. When Cole asked him, like, where do the coordinates go to? He started to saying they happened to go to a, a little town in northern Washington known as, and then he's interrupted before he can finish. So w- we can assume then that like 
that Diane's coordinates led to Twin Peaks. But the question I think that a lot of fans have had, and I've kind of gone online and looked at some of the discussion about this scene in this episode about the coordinates is that when did we see Mr. C get a third set of of coordinates? And I am going to assume that I, I, I think then that Diane did send Mr. C that incomplete set of coordinates. So she would be the third person. But my guess, Darren, is is that the two coordinates that match were the ones given to him by Ray and by Agent Jeffries. And the question that we kind of had after last week's episode was, was the Magnificent Tea Kettle helping Mr. C? Or was he thwarting Mr. C or setting him up for something and the outcome of, of this sequence told that tale. I love how you kind of set it up, this sort of long journey between him and, and, and Richard driving through the night, whether we talked about it last week on this podcast or whether you and I were talking about it offline. We kind of imagined that maybe what this episode would be is some long conversation in which... Uh, Mr. C, Richard's presumed father, would sort of like tell him his whole story <laughs> and, um, and and Richard's family history, if you will, and filling in blanks for Richard and for us. And I think that th- this episode signaled to me that this show has been made with a great deal of awareness of how the audience was going to be receiving everything. So so maybe it anticipated <laughs> that we we were going to expect a huge conversation, especially since Mr. C told him that, that you know, like get in the car, we'll talk on the way, right? <laughs> so we thought we would be privy to that conversation, but no, no. But there were so many things in this episode that I think Lynch did really well storytelling wise. Just letting your imagination fill in the blanks, using just a word to kind of, or a phrase to tell you everything that you need to know, using other parts of the story and forming association or implying association between them that allows you to fill in the blanks. You know, by the end of this sequence, we didn't need that conversation because Lynch in his great way like gives you just enough context clues and allows you to make connections to fill in the blanks yourself. So, um, so, so it was funny. I was, I was laughing like from the knowingness of that we are being defied what we thought we would get, which is like the origin story of Mr. C. What have I been up to the past 25 years and having this bonding moment with his son? Um, instead we, we get the antithesis of that. They arrived at that scene and, you know, the way that Mr. C talked in this way that like the lines that they gave him, like it was stuff like, I'm looking for a place. Do you understand the place? <laughs> and Richard's like, uh, no. <laughs> and, but it was all of these sort of like his interactions with Richard had this real loaded, but and, and then ironic quality to them. And especially that line in particular struck me the way that you set up this segment, the idea that like <laughs> Mr. C has this relationship with the coordinates, what you immediately kind of like provoked in me was a consideration of what if he never finds them? Like, which which would kind of like, we'll, we'll get into this in a second in terms of the treatment of villains questing for things and how they end and how they go out and whether or not they go out getting what they want. 
But Mr. C's story from the very beginning was he showed Daria that card in part one, the ace of spades that had been doctored with a pen to, to make it resemble like a horned creature, like the experiment or like the thing that is out there in the woods that we see on Hawk's map. And he, he tells Daria, this is what I want. And then from that moment on, he's been questing for these coordinates, which presumably will lead to a place that will get him an encounter with this entity of evil, this this creature of this death, this Thanos guy, you know, like entity or whatever. But it, it makes me wonder now, like whether or not, you know, so we're, he's searching for this place, he's searching for this transcendent launching pad to connect him with what he wants most in life. And it would be rather profound if actually he doesn't get it, if he never gets there. And it's all about frustrating that because every other villain in this season has had their wants and desires and and especially their ends completely frustrated by randomness and, and all of that. But maybe said more than I should. But yes, like what did you think of Mr. C and Richard's encounter here? I loved it. I loved that looking back, there's one line that really sticks out. Richard says, oh, well, I, I'd check the two coordinates that match, to which Mr. C says, you're a very bright young man, which works on two levels. One, you're so right, Jeff. And I love how Comic Lachlan's performance here almost kind of suggests like this malevolent android kind of play acting at being a paternal figure like you're a very bright (laughs) young man I'm 25 years your senior like it's just such a strained attempt at like trying to sort of connect here's what else I loved though Jeff Uh, apparently I have the ability to conjure utterly pointless characters because not a few days (laughs) after I had told you and our special guest Damon Lindelof I'd love to see Jerry again who should appear at this (laughs) most climactic moment for two of our most villainous figures that all Uncle Jerry still running eternally through the mountains and wilderness all around Twin Peaks. I was totally thinking of you when Jerry runs into screen. It was like, like Darren's gonna get his wish. There's more <laughs> Jerry Horn. And then one of the things that you said in our conversation with Damon was that you, you didn't just want another scene with Jerry Horn, you, you kind of wanted some kind of fitting conclusion to his arc that makes sense. And I'm not going to say that what we got last night with him was that final button that maybe you really wanted and a final button worthy the end of Jerry Horn's arc. But I would say that the very first line that he says when he comes in a frame and he looks in the distance and he sees Mr. C's truck with the headlights on and the floodlights on top illuminating the place where the coordinates had brought him this like like this this, this giant monumental natural monumental rock on top of a hill and the lights are flooding that and so Jerry's running up over the hill adjacent and he witnesses all of that. And he looks at it and he furrows his brow and he goes, people? (laughs) 
So Jerry is sort of observing this from afar, not quite understanding it. I, you know, if if one has been prone to view Jerry's journey through this season in a symbolic way, as I clearly am, I did sort of wonder if that was kind of meant to be like just seeing what's going on and not quite getting it and trying to understand. Richard sort of walks up. There's this great big rock up on top of the hill. The lighting behind Mr. C's head just gave that character this glow. He seemed so proud of Richard. Richard sort of follows the beep, beep, beeping. He is, you know, almost there. And then right then, lives up to the title Very Bright Young Man because he gets electrocuted and he gets in incinerated and he gets whatever happens to uh, the people at the end of Star Trek the motion picture except in a bad way not in a good way this time and Jeff you had pointed this out and I'll just kind of step on this for, for a second the best part of this scene unquestionably Mr. C sort of seeing this and just saying oh <laughs> You know, that O, I felt like, was encoded with so many things. It's a laugh line. It's kind of like a a, a shocked reaction, but also not a shocked reaction, because I think that what we suddenly understood was, well, I have two sets of, of coordinates. You know, two of them match. One of them is doesn't slash is incomplete. Two of them come from people that I have suspicion not to trust. And Ray even outright told me, like, what if they're a lie? So Mr. C clearly must have wondered, am I being walked into a trap? And so that O also contained a non-shocked element, too, of like, yeah, that's uh, that's what I was expecting. And that was probably that was going to happen. Uh, that could have happened to me. And that's exactly why he sent Richard up there <laughs> to, like, spring the trap so that he wouldn't go into it, which kind of like then retroactively turns you're a very bright boy into a joke, right? Because... That was Mr. C, like, trying to, like, act all fatherly and supportive and nurturing to his son. But really, he's trolling him. <laughs> uh, like, he's he's mocking him. Because that's not a bright reaction. Because, like, the, the correct response to, like, that puzzle is, well, who were the two people who gave you the coordinates that matched, you know? <laughs> right. Um, like that the fact that he didn't trust Mr. C, you know, he he just like like oh, like because it, it never occurred to Richard that Mr. C might be setting him up for something like this. So maybe he never allowed himself to entertain any notion that the information was not trustworthy, right? And when when you start really then thinking about everything unsaid, the character dynamics in the scene, Richard, who doesn't get a lot of lines or a lot to quote-unquote do in this scene other than to walk up to a rock and get electrocuted and die, it makes all of his actions really kind of poignant and sad 
because he clearly in that car ride bought into everything Mr. C must have told him, including the fact that like, maybe I'm your father and I'm finally connecting with a father figure and I'm going on an adventure with him. And it's kind of like a reverse like story of the binding of Isaac, <laughs> that Bible story about Abraham has to is told by God to take his son Isaac up to a rock on the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham's like, I don't want to do this. It's my only son. Like, don't make me do this, God. So they get up to the rock and he's about to follow through on this. And all of a sudden, like, he sees like a ram stuck in the bush and God says, hey, hey, you, you followed through the way that I wanted you to. You're good with me. Get your son off this rock. Put the ram on it instead and sacrifice this thing instead. This is the anti-version of that. <laughs> this is the father following completely <laughs> through on sacrificing his son with really no problem with it. I mean, like, that's how much your life means to me. You're a worthless sacrifice. You are the way that I treat everyone in my life. You are just equipment. You are tools. And I use you, I abuse you, and I'm done with you. So let's talk about that for, for a second, because the line that ends the scene, unless you count bad binoculars, bad binoculars, the line that ends the scene <laughs> is Mr. C saying, goodbye, my son, before he walks away. And we, you know, this is an answer to a mystery that has defined this season in a lot of ways, and yet the way that it is answered seems to retroactively imply that the question was perhaps less important than we thought. Like, how how should we take this simultaneous revelation that, yes, Richard Horn is the son of Mr. C, mixed with the plot moment of, oh, I guess Richard Horn was not important, or was not important the way he thought he was important, Important, perhaps not the way that we thought he was important. Like, how did you kind of accept that kind of moment of revelation, Jeff? Yeah, well, to, to the second part of that, I mean, the fact that he's just so indifferent to whether he just reconnected with his son and then just like, just totally uses him to spring a trap that was meant for him and just let him go like that just speaks volumes about Mr. C's evil. And the whole tragedy of Richard really is this kind of tragedy because he's now this really kind of like tragic evil character that almost is now his purpose in this story is something that to reflect on. And But I am struck by an arc of this sort of like questing, flailing anti-hero who, who we were introduced as, you know, in, in, in the full bloom of just like cocky, misogynistic evil who has that encounter with Red being deputized as being a drug dealer in Twin Peaks. And you've got the sense of a personality that just really hungering for significance. Remember his sort of like signature line when we, in those early scenes with Richard, like, don't call me a kid, you know, um, like I'm not a kid. You know, he wanted a big piece of the action. He wanted to be the big bad of Twin Peaks, right? But almost immediately the arc that Mark Frost and David Lynch give him is sort of a meditation a little bit or a judgment a little bit on the value 
of wanting to be anything like that about being a villain. And, you know, he's like, you know, out of control and he does this hit and run thing. And then he embarks on a cover up that involves an attempted murder. He has to, he's forced to leave town and he ultimately reaches a dead end in the form of his own father, this evil person that sired him. And the way that he dies in the show, you know, all agency has been taken away from him. He is just executing the orders of his father, really. And he dies. Um, we don't get a close up on him. We're not close to him. He's shot from a distance. He's electrocuted. He's betrayed. He's zapped. And he goes out like a chump. And it kind of speaks to the way that evil has been, you know, it, it reminded me of the way that Duncan Todd was taken out last week. All these sort of like big bad characters, they meet their ends in random ways or ironic ways. The irony being that like you you imagine them maybe dying and maybe being thwarted ultimately, but you always imagine them going out doing the evil thing that they that they want to do they're in the middle of the, of trying to like reach like the satisfaction of their quest and like then they're cut down by the hero the villains here don't get that kind of satisfaction in twin peaks you know it's almost like they're given these really sort of like i don't know these ironic bad deaths if you will that kind of represent for me some kind of judgment on everything they want and represent like you does that make sense to you? It No, it makes total sense to me. And to that, I would just add that more specifically, what I find really interesting in this scene, you know, we talked about this more a few episodes ago, this sort of downfall of the Horn family as something that is really epidemic, this greater sense of downward spiraling throughout this season for some aspects of, of Twin Peaks. You know, the fact that Jerry Horn yeah. is here to witness his, his great nephew's demise and it's an open question does jerry even really know it's richard i mean like you know is jerry even aware of what's going on here like you know in an episode that as you said jeff you're really inclined to read different scenes in conversation with each other i was struck by the fact that and we'll get to this later an episode that left our understanding of audrey horn of of richard's mother in a very strange place that we begin with the end of richard horn it, it makes me feel that you know perhaps some, you know perhaps some people in this show are aimed towards ascension will experience some kind of wonderful epiphany in the last couple hours i'm not sure the horns are going to be a part of that and just you know the whole sort of you know decline of the american family 25 years post-apocalypse is something that was weighing very very heavily uh in those moments Now that our beloved Agent Dale Cooper is 100% awake, now that the character that we've come to know as Dougie Jones has left Las Vegas, poor Bushnell Mullins, CEO, president of Lucky 7 Insurance. He's down an agent in his company and, and he needs a hire. He needs a quality person to fill the hole left behind by the great Dougie Jones who, who saved his company. He needs a quality guy to replace the hole that Dougie has left behind. Where, oh, where can Bushnell Mullins go to find a good candidate? Well, let me offer a recommendation, Bushnell. 
ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you could post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So Bushnell, Go to ZipRecruiter. It's super easy to use. Even an old school guy like you can figure it out. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks one more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. Jeff, let's shift to the most important hotel on the planet, the Mayfair Hotel in beautiful Buckhorn. Diane is at the bar. If it's a time of day, good chance that Diane is at the bar. She receives a text that we see Mr. C send. The text is, I believe, a happy face emoticon. So, by the way, now we know that Mr. C is the kind of guy who takes the extra second to put the nose on the emoticon. He's a very detail <laughs> oriented person okay not everybody does that we have to appreciate that in this day and age there's the emoticon followed by the single word all she sees this and her breath has been taken away it is almost as if she's been sort of physically brought down by this text she says i remember oh coop i remember that leads her to send a lot of numbers back to him you were kind of talking about this earlier jeff what seems to have happened there is she finally remembers the last two numbers that she had forgotten the first time she sent him coordinates. We can interpret this to mean that she is sending him to the right place, maybe? She says, hope this works. I initially kind of thought in that moment that what was happening was that Diane had been somehow mind-controlled for a while, and now for some reason that control was loosening. I, I don't think that's true, Um but I'd love to kind of know just your initial interpretations of what's going on here in the lead up to her kind of big scene of the episode. I had your initial read on it too, but I actually also think it's correct. I think that there's a lot going on like in this moment for Diane that is even more interesting to think about when we understand who and what Diane um, really is. But yeah, she receives this text from uh, Mr. C, and just to send us down a tangent, which is my way, when Mr. C had tried to send this text, it was actually like 2.05 in the morning. The, the time on his phone, Lynch's camera was careful to make sure that we saw time um, and time stamps on this. So he sends it in the middle of the night at 2 something in the morning, 
and we we see that he actually can't send it. There's something that's preventing him, like he's in an out of coverage area, or maybe the discharge of electric magical electrical energy from the rock there had messed with his phone. But the message can't send yet. So Diane doesn't get the all message until we see on her phone like around 430 or something. I'm guessing, you know, later that same day. So there is a like 12 hour or no, like 14 hour lag, you know, between when he sends it and when it finally arrives. And you wonder if that's going to make some kind of difference in the long term. You know, if yes. if, if she had gotten that right away, how things might have been different. I think that's something that we'll be able to piece together next week. But yeah, all that was an, you know when when she originally got that for some reason I thought that maybe he was sending a group text <laughs> I was like all oh, like I don't know like 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 I thought like oh like maybe maybe Diane is more than just there's more than one person getting this text you know but regardless it's like you, you wonder if it's just some magic triggering word like you know she's his Manchurian candidate. Or it's like, because I'm steeped in Star Wars, it was the Emperor saying, you know, execute Order 66, and all the clone troopers suddenly (laughs) turn a switch and kill all the Jedi, which kind of fits given where this is going here. But what I was also struck by throughout this whole scene, beginning at this moment, is a person at war with themselves. So what I got the sense here is that she's been both programmed by Mr. C and also kind of like placed with memory blocks so that maybe she isn't in total command with, of her memory and isn't allowed to remember all things, um, as we'll get into in a minute here. This all made me wonder if maybe she's actually, for some reason, been prevented. She has denied us, since we met her, the story of what happened to her between her and Cooper. And all of the stuff that's happening in this sequence made me kind of wonder if, like, well, surely this is someone who doesn't want to remember those things for a lot of obvious reasons, but it made me wonder if she couldn't remember those things because Cooper didn't want her to remember emotionally, um, memory-wise, the fullness of the horror of what happened that night because ultimately whatever like Diane is, and we'll get to in that in a minute, um, she has some kind of full autonomy and she could like defy him or thwart him if she existed in the fullness of, 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 of memory of their relationship. So I just got this overwhelming sense of someone who's been triggered, who is now remembering things like repressed, suppressed memory. I think all of these illusions that I'm now kind of talking about are very intentional on Lynch's part. It serves the plot but we're now witnessing, a, in an abstract, the, the, the portrait of a sexual abuse victim suddenly being forced to remember trauma, not necessarily on her own terms, reliving it all over again, and just kind of going a little bit nuts from it and hurting from it all over again. Very powerful idea. But in terms of the plot of Twin Peaks, I got the sense of just her being given a message that triggers memories and triggers orders and uh and 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 she might be at odds with them and trying to fight them that kind of sets up all of this but just back to the coordinates of it all i i trust that what she sent to him 
I, I think that the main purpose of that all was this triggering thing to give her access to memory so she could give him, uh, have total recall of everything, including those memories and uh, of the coordinates so that she can get the correct ones. Um, but it seems to set in motion something else as well. Yeah, I, I love your connection to the Manchurian candidate. I had not really conceived of her as the Lawrence Harvey figure, but I'm so intrigued by that given what we see. Great bit of just classic film noir ticking clock tension here when we see that there is a gun inside of her purse. That's just like this incredible flag planted in this scene with a great payoff. She walks to the elevator, walks down the corridor. The whole scene is set to the version of American Woman originally performed by the Muddy Magnolias and twisted and remixed and made much stranger and much darker by David Lynch. Uh, We may remember that the last time we heard this particular tune was the first time we ever met Mr. C, that first lost highway drive to Beulah's way back in part one. It really almost kind of made me think after the scene was over, like, is the American Woman song, is that like the official soundtrack for all the Tulpas? Will we hear it again? You know, Jeff, you had sort of, we talked a bit about this yesterday. Is the fact that, that the Muddy Magnolias are all women, but David Lynch's strange remix of it makes the voice sound much more masculine? Is that something that we should dig into? You know, just, but just really to me, the great thing about it is I loved the last walk of the wild bunch vibe of this scene you were just so aware that you know where she was going something climactic was going to happen and we even been teased it a little bit because earlier in the episode we'd had this brief shot of gordon cole kind of just standing in his room looking at all the monitors seeming to kind of be very aware that something was about to happen there was just this tremendous sense of anticipation building up to her arrival she stands outside the door and Gordon, almost seeming to sense her, says, Come in, Diane! She walks in, whole Blue Rose task force is there, and she proceeds to tell the story. And I'm, I'm really struck, Jeff, by this notion of yours that in kind of remembering one specific thing, that somehow lodged forth not just any memory, but the memory that f- for this version of Diane is almost sort of the dark primal moment origin of evil thing that kind of looms behind everything part of what made this scene interesting i think is you know in the context of diane this season but also in the context of laura dern's other performances with david lynch um you know in her kind of description of this horrifying long ago sexual assault this arrival of the man she thought was dale cooper coming into her house no knock no doorbell just walked in Something went wrong when he kissed her, he saw the fear in her, and he smiled, he raped her. It reminded me a little bit of Lula in Wild at Heart, has her own really horrifying description of a long-ago sexual assault. Um, But, at the risk of opening up a rabbit hole ten miles wide... It really related back in a way that a lot of stuff in this episode did to Inland Empire and to Laura Dern's four or five brilliant different performances as characters who are the same yet different in Inland Empire. How did you kind of feel, you know, 
to go macro and micro, this scene, how, how did it make you feel about the kind of Twin Peaks narrative we've seen? And just, you know, just the performance of it, the delivery of it, the meaning of it. Uh, what was kind of on your mind as you were watching this sort of really this kind of incredible final soliloquy by this character? Yeah. Again, you've summed it up really well. So forgive me if I end up just kind of restating some of the ideas and themes that you just did. But the filmmaking in this sequence is just so great. And again, the kind of storytelling that Lynch and Frost are practicing where we've gotten all of these pieces in the first 15 hours and all of these pieces have given us an orientation or context for the show to do things as it did in this episode where it doesn't need to explain anything. It could just sort of repeat a motif and suddenly you understand things and you're filling in blanks yourself. So yeah, that choice of that song by the Muddy Magnolias, American Woman, immediately like connects you to that beginning of the first moment with Mr. C. And the lyrics of that song, Lynch's remix of it is, you know, I know my worth and who I am. And then it kind of ends up kind of like culminating with something like, you know, I'll be damned before I take orders from any old man. Suddenly those lyrics completely frame the tragedy of who and what Diane is because I know my worth and who I am. Like this is a woman who has lost all of her agency and who has now just been used and abused and exists solely as a tool for another man. And she's been damned. Um, She will be taking orders from any old man, you know, or at least this one man, Mr. C. It's, It's so creepy, so sinister. And none of this really has to be explained because of that musical cue and the allusions to other characters. So well done. And yeah, like she walks into that room where Cole is hanging out with all of his machines and the way that like Lynch shoots himself with all of these machines around him that's feeding him information, but he's also got his fancy retro sophisticated sci-fi hearing aids like in his ears. And like you get this sense of this man with extrasensory powers, you know, mm-hmm. and he understands the synchronicities that are at work in the world. And he understands the evil that is walking toward his door maybe if not with total omniscience and clarity but he certainly feels it like he's literally using the force you know like there's another moment later where you know you mentioned it where we kind of dropped in on this look in on Cole surrounded by his machines listening to the beeps and the sounds and it's cross cut with these shots of like Dougie back in Vegas hooked up to these IVs and EKGs and heart monitors in the hospital. And you've got the sense that Cole was listening to that, you know? Um, And then she sits down, you know, she tells like, you know, you know, you asked me about that night when Cooper came to me, well, I'm going to tell you. And she tells the story that she tells, about a, apparently three or four years after she stopped hearing from Cooper, she was still working at the bureau. She's still working there, 
probably her heart's not totally into it. Cooper shows up in the middle of the night. They have this sort of sweet reunion encounter, but he just wants to be all business and talk about what's going on at the FBI. And she's kind of disappointed by this, but she understands, you know, he's just all about his job and he's just concerned about what's going on. He moves to kiss her and this is a, a an electrifying moment for Diane. We're told, we're told, well, she says something like, something like this only happened once before. And that immediately, immediately made me wonder, I think that there is something in the secret, that sort of like tie-in book from long ago, the, the autobiography of Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, <laughs> which I think that he recounts a moment where maybe he and Diane had one romantic encounter, um, but decided to keep things professional or something. I'm not sure we have to look that up. But she remembers that kiss or she remembers the anticipation of that kiss more than anything. Um, how, and you got the sense of like, she wants this moment with Dale and she probably really loved him. And so when he moves in for the kiss, she's really like into it. And she remembers her anticipation, but then she also remembers the feeling and the thought that she thought and felt when their lips touched, there was something really wrong with this guy. And then she kind of, this peak moment in Laura Dern's soliloquy when he, he says, and then he raped me, he raped me. And it's so powerful and unsettling and disturbing. And you're absolutely right. Like in your analysis of like Dern and Lynch cinema, you get the sense in this sort of several minute soliloquy that all of Dern's great moments in or all of her characters in all of Lynch's cinema have been kind of like condensed and sublimated into this one moment from the the innocence of of Sandy from Blue Velvet to the wildness of Lula and Wild at Heart to all things Nikki and Doppelganger and Tulpa in, in all of those films, she has amazing soliloquies. In Blue Velvet, she talks about the end of evil, that there's a season for everything, that evil comes into the world, but then the robins come and take it away. And that speech is ironic, given what we are seeing now with this sort of like descendant of Sandy as this tool and corrupted thing of evil or corrupted by evil. And she's about to be taken away like Robbins, if you will. But just like the, the romance of Wild at Heart and the betrayed romance of Wild at Heart. And then just the madness of Inland Empire ending. And, and all of those, you know, Wild at Heart and especially with Inland Empire, I believe that soliloquies about sexual abuse are very are key to those characters in those movies that, you know, the characters that Laura played uh, during played. And in fact, I want to say, Darren, that the, the, the behind the scenes story of Inland Empire goes that um, it began with Lynch writing some epic monologue for Laura to perform, recounting a life story that involves rape and sexual abuse and just filming it with digital cameras. Inland Empire is just a massive digital camera experiment for Lynch cut into a very complicated narrative. So 
I'm just seeing all of these echoes in this amazing long monologue for Laura Dern. And that's what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, about this episode sort of being this valentine to his actors. And Laura, in, you know, one of them here, sort of gives her another amazing scene to play, another amazing monologue, another disturbing monologue to perform, but one that echoes with all of the moments that she's, the all of these showcases bravura moments that she's given Lynch over the years so it has that meta level too so so yeah I'm just again restating a lot of themes and going on about them that you said so well but I was just struck by all of these things and then we got into Tulpa Madness yes the monologue sort of continues and takes us to places that we may recognize she mentions that Mr. C took her somewhere like an old gas station doesn't take much to guess that this is the convenience store although this this does make you kind of question and ponder further some of our notions of what the convenience store was. Did he take her there and use it as the waypoint to somewhere else? Is the convenience store where tulpas are made? It's all, you know, things we can sort of ponder if we ever get more information, which is quite unlikely. And that's when stuff got real weird. Uh, She kind of starts saying, I'm not me. I'm not me. I'm at the sheriff's station. I'm at the sheriff's station. And suddenly just beset by things that might be memories, that might be realizations, that might be deep existential quandaries she's not able to deal with. She finally and inevitably pulls out her gun. Of course, there are two other FBI agents that are a little bit faster on the, on the draw than her, and she dies. And when she dies, she disappears in a way that is familiar to us. We received information about the very first Blue Rose case, a woman who was shot and disappeared into thin air. And lest we not understand what's going on, thank you, Tammy, for helpfully putting a little bit of an expository button on this scene that was a real topa I, I i feel that tammy preston i have a lot of love for you i do wonder sometimes if your main role in this season is to just say the word topa so that we finally understand what it is and you know jeff I, i'm realizing now actually god just more layers to this scene you know you kind of i think unlocked this for me mentioning the manchurian candidate i'm very struck by the fact that the first time you watch this scene, you're just waiting, like, is she going to pull out the gun? Is she going to shoot someone? Has she been sent here? You almost wonder if her pulling out the gun was some sort of way to, you know, if it was her choice in that moment. Like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. I want this to end. I know that I won't be able to kill any of them. I know I've I just a lot of interesting levels within what's going on here. And then, of course, we see her in the Red Room, and if this is the end of Diane, what an ending. The one-armed man, Philip Gerard, says, someone manufactured her, and not missing a beat, she says, I know, fuck you. (laughs) Well, let's start with that ending in an episode in which we realize just the profound degree to which... Uh, Diane has been subverted in her life, and we understand the the fuming, the black fuming fury within her that animates every single one of her fuck yous, especially to the to all things FBI and her resentment. There is some 
small justice and, I don't know, satisfaction in watching her be disassembled, this manufactured thing being disassembled in the red room. But before that, you know, it's like the one-armed man says, you have been manufactured. And then like, I know, fuck you. Like, it's this way of kind of giving her agency back, you know, or some agency before she goes out and gets, you know, crunched and recycled and synthesized into her essence, which wasn't a golden ball. It, it, it Essentially, it looked like initially like a golden pearl the way that Dougie was reduced to his seed essence. But when we next saw it on the chair, it looked silver to me, which maybe suggested some kind of like redemptive kind of refinement that had occurred. But a lovely, if sad, moment for the way to her to go out. The whole revelation of Diane being a tulpa well, before we go there, because that might be a good place to end this idea, but you, you triggered something for me too, speaking of Manchurian candidates being triggered. This possibility, I kind of read the scene initially as maybe that, um, well, you know what happens in that scene, Darren? There's a moment in her soliloquy toward the end where she looks back into her purse and looks at her phone again, and she sees that all message. And Darren, I'm pretty convinced that that is a second all message. I think that she gets the first one at around like 238, 240, something like that. But the next one that she sees is time stamped at 250. And I'm wondering if she got two of them. So I'm open to the possibility that maybe she's being triggered anew Mm -hmm. and that maybe Mr. C has some sort of cosmic awareness of what is happening in this moment. And that so that shooting Gordon Cole and killing the FBI is very much part of whatever she's supposed to be doing and performing for him in this moment. But I am also open to the possibility that this is either an or and because this could be true too that reaching for that gun was sort of a suicide by cop moment yes you know that whatever was going to happen in this moment was going to happen and she was going to be okay with that i'm either going to perform this moment and i'm going to kill these guys or they're going to kill me and that's great because maybe i i want out so i think all of these things are true and from a symbolic level I was struck by, throughout this whole scene, Darren, what's in her black bag. Black bags, very symbolic in Twin Peaks. They are symbols of death. But within, like, um, I will get you with my death bag, which ends up being a black body bag. Um, I'm, I'm quoting, like, Bob's soliloquy. But she looks inside her black purse, and she has two choices. She could either reach for her cigarettes, or she could reach for her gun. And she initially chooses her cigarettes, but she doesn't smoke them, I believe, at any point during this scene. Mm -hmm. But her her brand is American spirit. And, you know, given the way that Lynch has this nostalgia for the past, 
but with this wise understanding that all of the things that uh, he, he loves symbols of America and he very much believes in the values and ideals of America and the American spirit as something good, something righteous, something noble, but it's also counterbalanced with this wise understanding that we as a society, we as a culture, don't live up to those ideals and that there is sort of like um, that they've been compromised, um, that we're living them out poorly and that we are ruled by some kind of corruption. I got the sense that there was something metaphorical going on with those symbols. Is she going to choose the way of the American spirit? You know, um, which is embodied by all things Cooper, good, or is she going to choose the way of the gun and evil, which is a saint with Mr. C? Um, So I thought that was interesting that she ultimately ends up choosing the gun. Finally, what I would say is up until now, the only tulpa, if you will, that we've seen on the show, and I think we're going to overuse the word tulpa the way that we've overused the word lynchian on this show. <laughs> Get ready for the final 90 hours of our podcast over the next week oh is just God. going to be us saying tulpa, tulpa, tulpa oh my all God. the time. Wait, wait, Jeff, Jeff, do you realize? And because this tulpa was someone that Lynch has worked with a lot, and therefore it referred to other narratives he's created, Diane was a meta-lynchian tulpa? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I, I love what you're saying there, and, and 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 I think you're half joking. I mean, so there is another level of this in which, like, tulpa being kind of a metaphor for extensions of a person, right? And actors embodying and extensions of a person. And when we talk about the cinema of Lynch. We talk about a guy who works in genre, but his own funky, weird twists on genre. And he works in abstractions and in sort of in, in, in personal characters. And yet his work is extremely personal. And everything is an expression of him in a sincere fashion. All of his characters are doppelgangers for him. They are thought forms for him. They are tulpas for him. Whether they're male or female, they express something about Lynch and and his art specifically, the art life in general, but just the world. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there is something kind of like on another layer of all of this, how this whole like use of doppelgangers and tulpas speaks to a director artist working through other characters to talk about the world, right? But on a Twin Peaks level, the plot level, I think that the realization that Diane is a Dougie-esque tulpa begs the question, how many more tulpas are out there? Who isn't a tulpa? Now it's Battlestar Galactica. You know, who isn't a Cylon? You know, like... Um, and, uh, um, and, and I, you know, as we kind of talk about other things, uh, wink, wink, foreshadowing Audrey, um, like, yeah, like you wonder if one of the great evil things that Mr. C has done in these 25 years on the loose is planting the world with all of these sort of doppelganger versions of people, um, all of these tulpas through which he can control and use. Um, so yeah, that's a big question I'm asking right now, which is like, you know, who isn't themselves? Is that, is that proper English? Like who isn't a tulpa? And, you know, 
I, I suspect this is something that we'll be talking about a lot next week, even if it's not explicitly stated as, you know, again, we're still not sure what kind of ending we're heading towards here and all the Inland empire stuff makes me wonder how much will be explicit. But there's been a lot of talk online already about, you know, Diane kind of saying, I'm in the sheriff station and what does that mean? Yes. And I yes. loved, I loved Jeff, you were, you, you were kind enough. There's someone inside of the sheriff's office right now, currently using that phrase loosely given the strange timelines of Twin Peaks. And that character's name is almost an anagram of Diane. I'm talking, of course, about the character Nado, first met in the space elevator, then found by Andy and the gang in the forest. You know, what does that mean? Is Nado the real Diane? Is there even a real Diane anymore? That's not really something that I thought was on the table. I guess I kind of figured Mr. C had just killed her, but it makes you wonder, does the act of tobification also create some sort of transformation in the original? These are all things that are worth considering, and the only vague reference that I have to add to that is after Nado's disappearance in part three... Dale Cooper went back into the space elevator place, purple room, and found someone named American Girl, which seems like it could tie into the American Woman song playing. Not sure. Saying lots of random bits of uh, random evidence here, Jeff. Do you have any other thoughts on I'm in the sheriff station and what, what that could mean? Well... I got to say, I encountered uh, some of those retweets and theories about Diane equaling NATO and immediately regretted the 30-minute phone call that I paid to you last night trying to insist that the insurance agent is Diane, which now seems to be like a total waste of your time. Um, but um, And I will come back to defending my insurance agent theory in a second here, but like... But I got to say, the Diane equals NATO thing is so smart and also something that maybe we could have figured out a lot sooner. Maybe there are theorists out there that have. I like that idea. It's a weird idea. Like, I, I, I'd love to know kind of more about the, uh, that whole process. Um, but if that is true, um, you know... Well, I mean, consider some of the context clues that we've been given for this. There's always been this aspect of Diane where in her home and in her dress that has evoked Japanese culture or, or, or you know, uh, something like that. And so you wonder if the clues were sort of being planted for some kind of connection with NATO, who I've always assumed maybe wrongly, forgive me if I'm wrong about this, to be like Japanese. But it also, if this theory is true, it really maybe changes our whole understanding of what that power station was uh, that Cooper fell into way back in part three. And I, I always kind of understood it as a pre-existing place that had nothing to do with Mr. C. But now you wonder if it was a trap. You know, if that if, if if that thing out there will now be understood as connected with the box that he built in New York and that all of these things were connected uh, for the purpose of serving this mission to send um, Cooper to Vegas to be shot and killed by these thugs waiting for him. 
And this idea then that that place up there in space might also have been a prison for a reincarnated, remixed, blinded a woman whose voice has been taken away from her and who's trapped in these sort of skittish time loops. You think then if that is Diane, it just speaks to the uh, uh, intense cruelty of Mr. C that he would do something like that to her and fitting too. then all of these symbols kind of add up. Like he puts her in limbo, traps her in a box, like takes away her eyes, takes away her voice, takes away her agency, remixes her into a completely different form altogether that might speak to certain interests and cultural interests that she has and some other good qualities about her. But she lives um, she's dead, but yet she lives, to paraphrase uh, Laura Palmer, and she might be residing currently in a jail cell in Twin Peaks, and she is someone to be found and saved and redeemed. I look forward to that. But could she be the insurance man? Like, um... <laughs> Listen, the, the, the insurance man is unquestionably the beyonder of this season, but I would just add, and this is the last time that I'll mention Inland Empire for the next 10 minutes, Inland Empire is a movie starring Laura Dern. It begins with a horrifying sexual experience that seems coded as assault. Late in the movie, this is not a spoiler because it's impossible to spoil, as one version of Laura Dern is dying, there is a final soliloquy that is delivered that seems to sort of be speaking to that death in some way that soliloquy delivered by the actress Nay Yuki who is now playing Nado ipso facto Inland Empire uh, is the film that explains everything Jeff here's why it's taken us so long to get to Las Vegas I'm almost not sure there's a million things to dig into in Vegas except for Really, uh, I might just say the most important thing that's happened this whole season. Jeff, uh, things came together in Las Vegas. <laughs> Thank you, Darren Fradich. If, if, if you weren't going there, I was going to be really disappointed. <laughs> things are really coming together in Vegas. Another one of our recurring motifs. And things did come together with some kind of finality in a beautiful, hilarious ecstatic, like, lovely, strange, sad way. Where do we begin? Let's begin, Jeff. Dougie, tragically not as many of our listeners had theorized, does not wake up in room 315 of the Great Northern. No, he is in a coma. Just a wonderful scene of beautiful humanity and hilarity. His family is there. Bushnell Mullins is there. The Mitchum boys show up with the Andy sisters in tow. There was a quality to this scene that felt very Wizard of Oz ending to me. Maybe just because probably just because like so many people this week were tweeting at me that they were shocked that I had somehow not conceived that Judy Garland was like a reigning er demigod for David Lynch. Um, that's very much on my mind now, very much on my mind in this scene. Just everyone sort of over the sleeping form of the dreamer. Um, and of course, this scene gave us some great moments of people trying to understand what happened. And Sonny Jim said, does a coma have something to do with electricity which 
Sunny Jim, Sunny Jim, you are us, we are you, asking the questions that we all have. But the buildup to the return of Dale Cooper was really centralized in the events happening on Lancelot Court in an episode that I think was David Lynch showing off what he can do with just these incredible bare materials of filmmaking. You know, put a gun in a purse and how does that add tension to a scene? Here was Lynch, like, the sort of Marx Brothers gradually building joke comedian. We see the Hutchinses arrive. They're waiting there. The FBI shows up. FBI agent Stan, which is what I've chosen to call the character after uh, Damon Lindelof uh, called him that, says, Wilson, you stay here and, and wait for them. Wilson's there with his, with, with, with his FBI pal. The Hutchinses are already kind of confused. Chantal is upset because she's on the last bag, Jeff. It's the last bag of a, of a processed cheese uh, synthetic food. At this point, the Mitchum boys show up. And I just love... We're so primed for this. We're so primed for this, like, three-ring circus gunfight between all the forces that have been swirling around. And that is the moment when the most badass character, and in some ways most horrifying character this whole season, the Polish accountant, the well-armed Polish accountant, arrives. (laughs) And I'm so struck by... This, to me, is really David Lynch showing himself as a true citizen of Los Angeles. The climactic moment in Las Vegas comes down to someone blocking someone else's driveway. I I am... So, so taken with the fact that, like, and to your point, Jeff, what a lesson that the Hutchinses, you know, are they brought down by, oh, you know, was was it their tragic flaw? And like, you know, ah, oh, they were like young lovers on the run. Like, no, they're just assholes. They parked on the wrong side of the street and they were blocking someone's uh, route to the garage. Like, of course they deserve to die. Uh, I'm not saying someone deserves to die for that, but I was so taken with all of this. Um, how, how did you feel about the Polish accountant showdown scene. Wow. Well, I love your summary of all of that, and I'm not going to disrupt it by elaborating on a lot of it, other than to say, I, yeah, I just, the comic suspense mixed with dread through this real protracted collection of mounting, compounding scenes of just watching all of these people show up at Dougie's house and then leave, and then everyone taking position was was both funny, but just like, oh, when are they going to make their move and go in? I, are they going to like go inside and wait for Dougie? Why aren't they making that moment? When is Dougie going to show up so they can do something? And what I was struck by in this moment is like, just sort of like, me like reflecting on myself and asking like what do i want from this scene and it got me wondering like do i want to see them go in the house and make some sort of violent move against characters that i love i've grown to love like why would i ever want that and in a way i'm wondering if that is part and parcel of like the point of this scene and what happens cuz you're kind of waiting on that to happen and you're 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 waiting on them to to make their move we've we've been teased this idea for many episodes now that Chantal is not only hungering for cheesos or whatever she's snacking on but we know that she's also hungering to torture someone so we have been set up for this for weeks 
And we are waiting, I think, for two things. One, to see that enacted, but also to see it subverted, right? Because mm-hmm. that's when you kind of expect some kind of heroic moment to occur. That's when Dougie is going to activate his Cooper and come online and do some heroic motion and activity and maneuver to put down the evil people. That's what we're being led to believe. Instead, kind of going back to this point that we talked about how evil doesn't get what it wants. It doesn't even, it's not even allowed to go out as they wish. This deus ex machina like character drops in out of somewhere. Are we going to get sort of a police interrogation of this guy? Is he a tulpa too? Does he represent the forces of the Black Lodge? Like, is he like, you know, in, in that moment in the van, Hutch has a moment. There are all these sort of little non sequitur conversations. And, and Hutch recalls that he owes some money to a guy named Sammy. And he never got a chance to pay him back because he was a good guy. And Chantal says, do you feel bad about that? And he goes, eh. (laughs) Um, He feels bad enough about it to reminisce about it. But does he feel bad enough about it to wish that he paid him back? I don't know. But he was a good guy. Like, does the Polish accountant represent some kind of guy coming to collect on behalf of Sammy? And this is chickens coming home to roost for these guys. Who knows? We may never find out. I just love the whole abstract weirdness of it. It all comes down to a disagreement over where uh, where people are parked. The Polish accountant like backs up his car and then rams into the van, the black van. Chantel's like all pissed off. Like, how dare this person do it? Like, Hutch is like, let's just get out of here. No, Chantel's gonna like, I'm gonna back up a ram into this guy too. <laughs> like, um, and so she does that. Um, I think that at some point, I don't know who draws first. Chantel, I think Chantel draws first. Yeah. Chantel draws first. Like, like she takes out her gun. She shoots through the windshield. I thought the guy was a goner. He isn't. He's able to get out of the car, goes to the behind of his car and then pulls out like a sub-automatic sh- machine gun and just starts spraying the van with bullets. I'm like, what's going on? And like, she gets winged. Chantel realizes that maybe this would be a good time to actually try to escape. Um, She backs up the van. She starts going away. And we thought that maybe Chantel and Hutch are going to escape to live another day. Like the Polish accountant just starts spraying this van with bullets and they just get riddled with them on the inside, like both Chantal and Hutch, a, a, a scene that recalls very much like the very end of Bonnie and Clyde. But instead of sort of being this sort of romantic, tragic goodbye to a pair of antiheroes we've grown to love, we feel that there is some just sort of great justice here being done. And you again sense that maybe some judgment is being made against archetypes of this type. They are worthless. This is exactly what they deserve. And why do we romanticize them, Quentin Tarantino? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but Or David Lynch, because David Lynch has participated in the romance of the anti-hero. And look what that's gotten us culturally, Donald Trump. Just kidding. But... Um, no, or not. But uh, anyway, so like you just kind of wonder if some judgments made. By the way, 
Another great part of this whole sequence, the reactions of Brad, of, of the Mitchum brothers, oh. who are inside like Dougie's house during this whole time, stocking it with food for the, the, the Jones family. They come out with guns drawn to observe all of this. And one of them says like, what's going on with this screwed up neighborhood? And the other one says, well, you know, people are under a lot of stress these days. <laughs> I'm going to remember, whenever someone asks me to explain the year 2017, I'm going to always remember, people are under a lot of stress, Bradley. That that was <laughs> incredible. We returned to the hospital. Bushnell Mullins, the sort of last person left looking over the fallen form of Dougie, the person we will, we will no longer call Dougie, perhaps. Although perhaps he is still Dougie. Who's to say, really? He hears a sound inside of the hospital. The sound, I believe, uh, I can say this without any controversy or hedging of bets, is that sound from the Great Northern that's been sort of so tantalizing uh, Ben Horn and that James heard down in the depths. Bushnell sort of wanders off to find it. And it is at this moment that I have to imagine a certain Dune fanboy out there really felt like Christmas and Easter and whatever holiday they celebrate on Arrakis had all come at once because upset Agent Dale Cooper... And in that incredible effect we've seen throughout this season of the layering of kind of Red Room verse onto our verse, there was the one-armed man saying, you are awake, finally. Loved everything about that. Uh, some interesting things to chew on here, Jeff. I-, I loved how, as we kind of mentioned earlier, the immediacy with which Kyle McLaughlin became Dale Cooper again, and the way in which there was there was no moment of like, you know, where am I? Who am I? That we might have kind of expected. There was a real kind of Marge Gunderson vibe to him. Like he was just like, I'm moving in here, know exactly what to do. This great back and forth of the one-armed man kind of giving him the green ring, the owl cave ring. We've talked about this. This seems to be some way to defeat Mr. C, the other one that didn't go back in. He's still out. Uh, but I loved that, you know, we, we kind of maybe expected some element of that because, you know, if you introduce a green ring in act one of a movie 25 years ago, then Chekhov's rules follow that you have to reintroduce it in part 16, a quarter century later. But I was very struck immediately. And this this to me, just to think about the moments that immediately felt very Dale Coopery. He kind of asks, do you have the seed? We don't even know what he's talking about yet. And we see the one on man hold up that sort of gold golden gem and he says again not even blinking not even taking a pause pulls off a strand of his hair and says i need you to make another one and i was almost kind of moved to tears and you know i i think it's kind of clear what's going on here the idea that in this sort of first moment he's immediately kind of concerned about the jones family and seems to be concerned about like you know i need to ensure that you know, there's another Dougie here. I need to make sure that this father comes home. And, and you know, we can analyze the mechanics of that, but I, I just loved how right off the bat, that was the old Cooper to me, right? That kind of like, just because there's a grander calling that a person in another universe is sending me towards, I'm not going to kind of forget this world right here and these people right here. How did you kind of feel about the sort of protracted leave-taking that took place uh, between Dale Cooper 
Pepper is. He was, you know, again, again, to think about like Wizard of Oz, this was sort of like this sort of parade of hugs, right? Like, you know, Bushnell, you know, the heart was inside of you all along, JDE. I, I just, I, I loved all the sort of honoring of those character dynamics as he sort of took his last drive away from Las Vegas. Yeah, a couple things. You noticed the whole thing about, you said something about Chekhov's rules, and I'm struck by this whole episode and some degree this season has been the whole thing of like Chekhov's gun, right? Which is, I, I think is sort of like a, a restatement of Chekhov's rules, but the idea of like, if there's a gun introduced in the scene or if there were, as Hitchcock kind of rearticulated, I think if there's a bomb, if you see a bomb placed under the table, the bomb has to go off, right? Dougie, Agent Cooper has been the bomb under the table that we've been waiting to go off all season long, right? And it finally happens in this episode. But in an episode in which we see things like a gun in a purse and we wonder, is it going to be used? Where we see the living weapons that are Chantal and Hutch inside a black van and are they going to be used? Uh, what, what What's going to happen here? So you have those kind of rules apply. Maybe the least interesting observation of this scene, which was just so aesthetically warm and, and lovely. You mentioned the stuff with with the one-armed man appearing to Agent Cooper, and it's great to actually call him now Agent Cooper again. The humor of that moment is, is that, you know, you would... Th- you would think that like the one-armed man can appear to like Cooper at any place in the room, but but no, he appears in a chair. Like the joke of that scene is is that like the one-armed man like came into the in, in the room and sat down in a chair. <laughs> <laughs> I just I found that whole idea kind of funny. It, it, it could have been a vision appearing right in front of him, or on the ceiling, or on the or 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 parallel to him, you know, dancing a little guy on his chest. I don't know, but instead he, he takes a seat, and so you have this sort of uh, encounter between them. Yeah. Now let's talk about the moment where, like Cooper, what we realize immediately is that Cooper has full memory yeah. of his stint in Vegas. Yeah. So that was interesting to me right off the bat. He has been awake. He has been inside that head all along, perhaps experiencing things and not being able to exert himself with this agency. Or at the very least, maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. He's been experiencing these things, even though he hasn't been able to express as he wishes, but he has full memory of everything that has happened to him and full emotional memory of everything that's happened to him. So it's not just like he was experiencing things, the kindness and love and uh, that he received from other people, including Janie E and, 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 and Sonny Jim. But he, he, he feels that too. He felt that, you know, that is all available to him. So I thought that was really touching and moving that we, we got that sense of it too. Then this whole idea that he has basically ordered a replacement Dougie for Janie E and Sonny Jim, like we, you know, hey, Mike, one our man, we owe these people something. So it's your first hint that Cooper's job now is to repair and to make good and offer redemption and reparation for all of the evil that Mr. C has inflicted on the world, including this Dougie character that was made and ended up making a mess of the lives of Janie E and this son, Sonny Jim. And 
the sense of Cooper feeling like we owe them something. And what we owe them is a replacement husband. We owe them a replacement father for this. And that's all very sweet. Also really weird and interesting to think about, especially that we, by the end of this episode, we know or have reason to believe that Janie E. understands that this man is not her husband. And um, so you now wonder, um, to kind of borrow some language that we'll get later in the episode, when, if and when, you know, a Cooper is going to walk through that red door and he's going to be home with his family, how she's going to receive that moment and whether she should care about that, you know, like it's a, it's a queasy, creepy thing. I don't, but I don't hold it against the show because I kind of wonder if it's part of provoking these questions about who are we to each other? What do we mean to each other? Does it matter that this Dougie that might be walking through the door at the end of the show isn't the man that she fell in love with, or isn't this new man that she's grown to really fall in love with, is is our only meaning to each other what we do for each other. Um, that's an interesting, and what we provide to each other. Um, maybe, maybe not. I think these are interesting questions, but I kind of wondered envisioning that moment at the end when Dougie, quote unquote, comes home, if that's a really wonderful, beautiful thing, or if it's a complicated thing and, and, and we're supposed to be thinking about those things. Yeah, I think it's really queasy for sure. I mean, like, I uh, just, just to add to that, it, it makes you immediately think of the last shot of Blue Velvet, which is almost this kind of beautiful, like, ah, like, you know, mother reunited with a child and it's all good. And then just the look on Isabella Rossellini's face makes you think like, oh boy, oh, maybe, maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you're meant to kind of feel the niceness and feel the weirdness of everything that Dale is sort of working towards right now. <laughs> right. So, but here's the other thing that I think that that kind of idea sets up. It gets us thinking about a happy ending for Twin Peaks, the return in which everyone gets what they want, right? Including the audience. We get the return of Agent Cooper and maybe he's now staying in Twin Peaks. Janie E. and Sonny Jim will get a replacement Dougie Cooper. So this moment in which he orders up uh, a, a replicant for, uh, for, for Janie E. gets you thinking about these things. But then it should also be getting you, making you wonder other things too, like if it doesn't happen. And one way in which that scenario might not happen. So what it got me thinking is how are ways in which my envisioning now of the ending, the happy ending could be subverted. And one of them is, is that Cooper, that the Cooper that we know now that is now awake 100% and alive in the world and now about to enact some kind of heroism, isn't going to make it out of this season. And that the only quote unquote Cooper that will remain is the Cooper quote unquote, that will come home to Janie E and Dougie and, and Sonny Jim at the end of the show, now suddenly that moment has completely different meaning, right? Like, I know it's probably way premature to speculate about these things, but I, 
I think that these scenes beg that kind of speculation. So, so what is the value then storytelling wise of introducing this idea right here, right now that a dummy, uh, a Cooper, a replacement Dougie is being made and ordered up? Well, among many things, it gets us wondering about the end, but I think it also um, starts to introduce questions about whether or not the Cooper that we now have back to us is actually going to make it out of this season. Yeah, definitely. And or in turn, if our Cooper does survive whatever showdown is coming, it makes you wonder what choices he might make. And would he return to the Jones family? And what would that mean if he does? I mean, you know, we'll be discussing, I think, in the aftermath of this season, just what is the meaning of the Jones family? How how was this season about keeping up with the Joneses and this this peculiar, almost sitcom perfect? American family and how what happened to them was positive or was secretly not as positive as as we were meant to think. You know, in this episode, uh, we learned that the man, the Polish accountant who lives across the street from them has a submachine gun that he is not afraid of firing out on their street. We may interpret that that is not necessarily a positive perspective on the the Jones family's peculiar neighborhood. I, I think we're meant to take all of this as like, like, what does it mean? What does Dougie mean? I think it's moving on one level when Dale says stuff like, you know, you've made my heart so full. I'm kind of tearing up just thinking about that and what that means for the Dale Cooper character. I also think you're meant to very much reside with Janie E and her kind of realization that all is not right. And perhaps her realization that all might not be right. We even when a man comes through that red door, I think it's all there is what I'm saying. I, I, and I'm kind of fascinated right. by that. And, and it, it makes you wonder, if this is the end of Vegas, what does that mean? If not, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, Darren, before we leave this, can we just sort of like ring out our celebration of the return of Cooper with just reading some of these great lines that are written for Cooper, but performed so well by Kyle McLaughlin. Like I just loved again, Bushnell pass me some of those sandwiches. I'm starving. (laughs) Um, Bushnell says the FBI is looking for you. And he's like, Perfect. Um, and I love the way he greets like Janie E and Sonny Jim when they come into the house. There's something about just the way he says, you know, hello, Janie E. Hello, you know, hello, Sonny Jim. Hello, Janie E. Just though he is so dialed into that character. It's just great. I mean, just like I'm just moved by just these little lines. Like he immediately stands up. He wants to be discharged. He says, Doctor, will you confirm that my vitals are A OK? Like A OK is just like this great Cooper word. Like, and and I love this, uh, again, in a scene of, like, every line almost, like, self-aware in the sense of, like, this is a show that Mark Frost and David Lynch knew very well. And I think this scene totally proves it. What they were, they knew that they were going to be frustrating the audience by delaying the return of Cooper for 15 freaking hours. Like, um, and so you get to this moment where, like, he's coming out of bed and he's ripping off all these things and he wants to be discharged. And I think Janie says, Dougie, are you sure this is a good idea? And Cooper looks to her and goes, it's a good idea. Idea. <laughs> it's like the show is saying, like, this idea has been a long time coming, right? And, well, and, oh my God. I mean, and just, I mean, the, the layout of the lead up to that, as he's saying goodbye to Bushnell Mullins, you know, he asks, uh, you, you know, can, can I speak to the Mitchum brothers? He talks to them. They say, we're gassed up the jet, Dougie. And the Twin Peaks. <laughs> 
the Twin Peaks theme music by Angela Badalamenti comes in oh, yeah. right as it starts up. That's when uh, Jim Belushi, I, I always forget which Mitchum brother is which, Jim Belushi says, wonder what Dougie's up to now. Right as the music kind of builds over that and Bushnell says, you know, what about the FBI? Just the perfect moment. I think the moment when the Twin Peaks title used to come up in the original credit sequence, that's when he turns and says, I am the FBI. Like, that's worth <laughs> that's worth 15 and a half hours. That's worth 25 years yeah. uh, plus change. <laughs> well, and you know what? Like, and here we go, because this is where in the new issue of EW, I kind of offer a sort of like, you know, in, in the TV review space, I kind of talk a little bit about the value of this, of Twin Peaks, The Return, um, as this sort of just uh, whatever you think of it, this idea that David Lynch, working with Mark Frost, has come and given us this very adventurous, bold, personal direct, you know, like genre show is like a redemptive thing, but also that at a time of reboots and really kind of like callous crass reboots that sort of like exploit and trade off our nostalgia. I feel like Twin Peaks has all been about like the value of reboots and the value of return. Like, so what I love about ultimately the experiment and the story of Twin Peaks is that it wasn't just, it hasn't just been about satisfying our want to get back to Twin Peaks and satisfying our nostalgia and and being a time machine. It's been about sort of interrogating, like, what do these characters mean? What do they mean to us? Why would we want them back? Like, um, who is Agent Cooper? What is it about Agent Cooper to be nostalgic for? What does he represent? What does that even mean to us? What is the tension of, like, being backward-looking and wanting things the way they used to be, but needing to move forward as well? And I just think that, like... That's where these decisions all pay off to, like when we are encountering the, countering the return of Agent Cooper here in this moment, we are not just being satisfied by getting something that we've wanted, but we're doing that with this mind full of ideas and, and being moved to consider what this guy means and what he might mean or the return of something like him might mean to his world. So yeah, I mean like I am the FBI, you know, in the symbolism of the show and symbolism of David Lynch, you know, he's not just venerating the FBI, but that is just some like profound and elusive identity statement of like just sort of goodness and law and order. And yeah, the way that he loves on Bushnell in that moment, like, you know, you're a fine man, Bushnell, I will not soon forget your kindness. And then flowing out of that moment, music swelling and soaring. Janie E has brought around the car. They get in the car. I'll drive. And they're kind of worried about this because Dougie driving is not a good idea. But he's like, don't worry, I got this. And then like, you know, again, a metaphor of a guy sort of like finally sort of regaining his own agency and regaining control over his life. He's going to drive the car and they're zooming down the street toward the casino. <laughs> like what, what does Sonny Jim say? So, 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 like, like mom, like dad's a really good driver. <laughs> and then like during all, during all of this, Janie E starts like looking over at Dougie, the man that she thinks is Doug, still Dougie, with these like shiny eyes, like like oh yeah, he knows how to drive, like. <laughs> 
just the comedy of this woman kind of like like suddenly getting like pretty like hot and bothered for her man as he's like taking charge is like pretty yeah it's 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 comical and then yeah and and then to lead from that into as we were saying earlier that last i'm so struck by the fact that the last moment perhaps in this season between dale and this family that's been so important to him it's in it's back in like you know the sort of crop rows of casino machines where he first sort of arrived in las vegas and just the way that last shot of Janie E and Sonny Jim, it was just them and all the slot machines and kind of like nobody else around, I don't think. And I'm just so taken by, yeah, to go from the sort of like light comedy of that to that moment. I mean, m- maybe I- I'm just prone to assuming that any shot of slot machines is weighted with a lot of significance, not all of it symbolically good. I'm just so struck by that. So much to dig into. Our jackets are on. We have left the threshold. <laughs> the MC has introduced uh, beloved rock star Edward Lewis Severson, which, by the way, if you had told my brother at the start of this year, hey, David Lynch has a new project that involves Trent Reznor and Eddie Vedder, and they're going to play complete musical numbers in that project, like, this is truly a dream come true for the Ben Horn to my Jerry Horn. But, um,. Eddie Vedder's up there singing a song called Out of Sand. Strong feeling of running out of time. You can dig into the lyrics of that song and find some interesting resonance as far as someone looking at a reflection to the bone. Talk about that in a second. But there she is, Jeff. Not in a dream. Not in an alternate reality. Not in the red room. Put heavy quotes and maybes around all those things I just said. Audrey and Charlie at the Roadhouse having a couple of martinis. And just when we think like, okay, well, I guess that the twist here was that, you know, it's less weird than we think. That's when the MC announces Audrey's dance. Oh man. I mean, like, I thought nothing could get better than James, the greatest singer on earth, singing the greatest song on earth at the Roadhouse. But this dance number was really something. Uh, how did you kind of interpret it? And how did you interpret, you know, what kind of led out from it? So many layers to this scene that just built up over the course of time. You captured my experience of that trajectory of that scene, like, really well. Like, when Audrey and Charlie walk in after so many um, weeks um, again, sort of these Chekhovian kind of ideas of like, we've been set up and we've been built up for something weird with Audrey. Is that space at her home even real? What's going to happen when she finally puts on that coat and walks out that door? Is there a quote unquote real world outside this sort of like, you know, a snow globe bubble of this, of this house of hers? And we've been expecting some kind of like, you know, mind blowing, you know, psychotic break, some kind of like cosmic moment, this proverbial, you know, gimmick, this gun to go off. Right. But instead, when they arrive at the roadhouse, I'm like, oh, I guess not. I guess we've been manipulated. We were set up. That's not what's going to happen. And we get that lovely song with Eddie Vedder, which I haven't really had time to sit with the lyrics, but I'd love to hear more from you on what you think they might mean in a second. But then it's like, okay, like, where's Billy? <laughs> you know, like, you just kind of wonder if this is where the scene is going to go with Audrey. We're going to finally get payouts with all these people that she's been rambling on about. 
But instead, suddenly, the scene takes a sharp turn back toward the weird with the whole Audrey's dance thing. And it's like, I was both excited and frankly, frankly, like a little afraid about what was going to happen in the sense of like, here was a moment in which the show is going to revisit one of its most iconic moments ever from the first season. That moment where, you know, Sherilyn Fenn as Audrey Horn is reminiscing about Agent Cooper and just sort of she's mooning over this, this new FBI agent that's come to town and she's fallen in love with head over heels. And then like, she's like in love with all things Cooper, coffee, his image, music that's associated with him. Like she she activates the jukebox and she just starts dancing and swaying to this song. And it's all about just her mood and all about how she's feeling and how she's feeling about Cooper in particular and how Cooper makes her feel. So it's just really great moment that was wonderfully performed and almost like improvised on the spot in collaboration with Lynch back in the day in that moment. And now here we are like 20 some odd years later and Sherilyn Fenn is going to recreate that moment. And you could kind of imagine all the ways that could be really beautiful and go completely wrong, right? Like, is she going to be able to perform this well? Is she going to be able to conjure those feelings? And like the just you and I moment with James several weeks ago, it is Twin Peaks now at its most nostalgic and satisfying, you know, seemingly trying to satisfy you with hardcore nostalgia hit. But in the same way that the James moment singing Just You and I was shaded and subverted a couple weeks ago with this sort of implicit questioning about whether or not this man's nostalgia wallowing was a good idea or not, whether it kind of it flattered him or actually kind of made him a sad figure. I, I feel like we were touching on similar themes here. And the big moment that we're building up to here is actually presaged like earlier in the um, episode, because we talked about when Cooper woke up and we got that full force of the Twin Peaks music, um, the theme song, Julie Cruz's Falling. And it's just this massive nostalgia rush, right? But do you remember how it abruptly ends? Because we're, we're, we're lost in this moment and then we smash cut to Diane in Buckhorn receiving that all text and the music just completely stops, you know, like um, it comes to abrupt halting end. So what you have here is Lynch very sort of knowingly like giving you what you want and indulging in this nostalgia, but also testing it and also questioning it. And I'm subverting it too. So back to Audrey, she's doing the dance. It's a more elaborate version of the dance um, with a whole lot more moves and a whole lot more mystery and weirdness to it than, than it ever had back in the day. It becomes a metaphor for Twin Peaks, the return itself. Audrey's dance here in 2017 is just like Twin Peaks, but more and weird, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and and, and it, it's the spiritual essence of Twin Peaks, but like tra- transmogrified and and tested and and, and warped and contorted and, and and reflected upon. 
So she has this great moment, but then it ends abruptly, right? And not in the cosmic way that we're building up to. A bar fight breaks out. Some guy throws a beer bottle at another guy saying like, you know, I think like accusing the man of like, that's my wife, asshole. (laughs) That's my wife. And once again, right? So this is interesting. We've tracked this all season long, this theme of, unfaithfulness this theme of adultery this theme of divorce you know like relationships breaking up things being severed holy bonds that are being shattered and you just wonder if there's that motif is being used like in in a a number of layered metaphorical ways here so here we are in this moment and uh that is sort of faithful to original twin peaks and it's completely shattered by this this violence that kind of breaks out there's a shot after this fight breaks out yet another fight implying just endless amounts of romantic intrigue culminating here at the roadhouse audrey turns actually runs toward us, toward the camera. There's just this millisecond as she's running towards us where she seems to meet our eyes, saying like, Charlie, take me away, take me away. Cut. We see that Audrey is looking into the mirror. We see her reflection. There's a sound of electricity. We may consider all the times electricity has been brought up and utilized in this episode especially and also just throughout the season. She seems very confused. It's all white in there. She seems to be wearing white. There's all white all around her. She's very confused. She doesn't understand what's going on. That's where there's a cut And then over the end credits, we see the band that had been playing Audrey's dance now sort of playing it in reverse. We wonder if there's some type of red room thing going on, or I would say we wonder, is the cycle kind of resetting now? Are we kind of watching the metaphorical version of a rewind, and perhaps soon they'll start playing that dance number again, and perhaps soon Audrey will return there again? You know... The the immediate and perhaps therefore most compelling explanation of this, Jeff, Audrey is indeed in some mental hospital, uh, perhaps the Ghostwood mental asylum that seemed to be teased on her second approach. You and I, of course, have already talked ourselves into something much more elaborate and therefore almost certainly inaccurate, but in an episode that dug so deep into the idea of tulpas and what that means, was Diane, as she was in one place in the form of a tulpa, was she also somewhere else? And does that Diane that was somewhere else have some understanding of what was happening to the Tulpa. We've discussed the possibility of, is the Audrey we've seen with Charlie? Was she a Tulpa? Was this somehow Tulpa Audrey being in communication with real Audrey? And if so, where is real Audrey? Is she here on this earth? Is she on another earth? So many things to chew on in this essentially the penultimate moment of the show before we go into the two-hour finale. And I think more than anything, more than having a bead on it, which I clearly don't, I'm just so struck by the wonderfulness of a scene that just so playfully messed with your understanding of whatever we we should call reality. And I just, I, I so enjoyed that, even as it left me just provoked in a lot of different interesting analytical directions. But what is sort of your 
we, we've been sitting on it on a sleepless night now before we recorded this podcast. What is kind of your current thinking about that single shot of Audrey that we saw and the sort of sizzling hum of electricity in the background? Uh, I think you still summarized all the ideas that are still in play. I don't know. Like, it's real troubling. And I think I'm... I'm leaning more now to a belief that something has happened to Audrey, that she too has been tulpified. I think that all of the scenes in this episode kind of work together to inform some understandings. The Diane ordeal speaks to Audrey and Audrey speaks back to Diane. Diane was a victim of rape by Mr. C., Um, She was taken to some other place. A copy of her was made. That copy went back into the world and performed as Diane, while some other Diane is somewhere else. Most likely, I will uh, buy into completely the whole NATO theory. And so the NATO idea being that she was like held captive in some place um, outside of our lived reality in some other sort of limbo world. So when I come now to Audrey who's also raped by Mr. C. That's the implication of this episode, that um, Mr. C like had sex with her while she was in a coma and gave birth to Richard. But I also think that some kind of topification occurred so that this Audrey that is in this world is a copy and that real Audrey is imprisoned in some limbo there. And they might have some sort of psychic under uh, communion with each other, but in a frazzled, like, you know, elliptical interrupted electrical connection kind of way. I think that we can now understand Audrey's existential crisis over the past several episodes um, where she's literally doubting her own mind, her own existence, her own reality, We should speculate that this is sort of like what we were witnessing here is something akin to what we were experiencing from Laura Dern as Diane in this episode, where she's having an existential crisis of who and what she is and fighting like, you know, certain truths about herself and and, and all that kind of stuff. Here, Tulpa Audrey then is similarly conflicted. Again, I just want to be clear. I'm not going into the final episode with a hard theory like this is what I think or this is what's happening, but I think this is the possibility that makes sense to me, but I'm more going into the final episode of like, okay, I don't know what's going on with her and I look forward to being told what what's happening with her. I would say that again from that whole Meta Lynch level, like this sort of maneuver of an actress, you know, playing a part uh, you know, Audrey sort of like doing this dance and all of a sudden, and all of a sudden her, her, she has this psychotic break with reality in which she kind of now understands herself as someone else, somewhere else, experiencing something else is very Lost Highway, but it's also very Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know about the twist there, it's also Inland Empire too, in an episode full of those kind of communions with Inland Empire but to the Mulholland Drive of it all, you know, hardcore Twin Peaks uh, geeks who know the lore of Lynch and Twin Peaks know that a- according to various stories that have been told over the years by Lynch and I think Frost and certainly Sherilyn Fenn, that the idea about Mulholland Drive began on the set of the original Twin Peaks 
as a sort of like just talking about casually, maybe we will really do this, this idea of a spinoff vehicle for Audrey Horn. And so the idea being that Audrey would have left Twin Peaks and gone to Los Angeles and try to make it as an actress. And that was sort of like the kernel, the seed, if you will, of the idea for Mulholland Drive. So the idea that now, so many years later, Sherilyn Fenn is getting a chance to play Audrey Horn in a way that mirrors the twists and uh, plots, if, if you will, of Mulholland Drive is sort of like a fitting kind of thing. Very fitting. I, I have nothing to add except that if we are trending towards Mulholland Drive, then uh, the final two parts of Twin Peaks, it would only really make sense if we discover that absolutely nothing we've seen so far this season has actually happened and everyone is still there but playing different characters. Don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're trending in that direction, but we'll see. Jeff, we've uh, almost equaled the running time of Inland Empire. Any final thoughts on part 16 uh, before we uh, leave our listeners for for the week? No. <laughs> Me neither. No, I, I, I think I've emptied my brain pretty sufficiently, other than to say that, like... Great penultimate episode. If you're following me on Twitter, I think I had teased several weeks ago that my sources and contacts within Showtime had teased that there was at least one more episode before the finale that they considered to be their favorite episode after the A-bomb mind-blowing experience of Part 8. And I was tipped off uh, before this episode that this Part 16 was that episode. And it lived up to that expectation. It wasn't, well, it had its mind-blowing aspects, but it satisfied more on sort of this emotional level, nostalgia level. Um, it, It worked as a really beautiful hour of TV. And as we're now heading into the two-hour finale, and I'm super excited about what we're going to see. I, I, I don't have any expectations. I'm not really going in with a handful of theories and wanting them to all to be true. Uh, if anything, I just want to be completely transported, and I can't wait to see what Lynch and Frost have for us in those final two hours. I think it's going to be pretty special. And I won't be satisfied unless we finally get to see Deputy Jesse's new car. Uh, Everyone out there, we'd love to hear from you. We'll do a special episode later this week talking to Twin Peaks scholar to end all Twin Peaks scholars, John Thorne. Definitely check out that in your feed. Tweet at us. He's at Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. Email us. Twin Peaks at EW.com. I want to hear any thoughts you have going into the last couple hours of Twin Peaks. While you're at it, if you like listening to us as, as, as much as we like listening to each other, go on Apple Podcasts, give us a rate, give us a review, let us know what you think. We'll be back later this week with John Thorne. And next week, it's going to happen the 10 hour finale podcast for a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about <laughs> Twin Peaks. <laughs> 